Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. Last weekend, we saw more Americans going to movie theaters than any time since before the pandemic. We will be talking about the subject of one of the blockbuster films that came out. But first, we return to another installment from the special series, A Prayer for Salmon, from our producing partners at The Spiritual Edge. In this episode, Judy Silber takes us back to Shasta Dam, where as the plans for enlarging the project accelerate, the Winnemum Wintu decide to hold a war dance, their first in more than 100 years. Members of the community dream into existence songs, dances, and regalia. News of the ceremony and that the tribe has declared war against the United States government from on top of Shasta Dam goes around the world. And that leads to an unexpected message from down under. Judy Silber brings us this story. So do you want to step up there? Sure, I mean, yes. or how comfortable are you? Yeah, I'm I mean, good. I'm okay. good. Actually, maybe tell me you can hold. I can hold this uh, mic for you until you get up there. Yeah, it's, it's nice and sturdy. You just got to remember where you are. <laughs> I'm climbing up the side of a big, unusual kind of truck parked outside the Livingston Stone National Fish Hatchery, just below Shasta Dam. At the top, wearing black galoshes, is Bo Hopkins of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah, I'm, I'm standing in a, approximately three foot of water right now, and I'm surrounded by fish, all kinds of males and female salmon, winter-run salmon and spring-run uh, Chinook salmon. He's a fish culturist, someone who breeds fish. And we are going through them right now and tagging them and taking a genetic punch out of them. The tagging and punching is to help one species of Chinook salmon, the winter-run an endangered species. In the 1990s, alarmed by the low numbers of returning winter-run Chinook, the federal government built this conservation hatchery. They named it after Livingston Stone, a 19th-century fish culturist who famously set up this area's first hatchery. Bo Hopkins reaches down and grabs a smallish fish from the lot. He holds it up for me to see. Like the others, this fish was caught in traps about eight miles downriver at a dam that went up shortly after Shasta. It's now the furthest the salmon can swim. From the traps, the fish are loaded onto this truck that brings them to here. So this is a nice male winter-run Chinook salmon. The government would like to use a winter-run fish like this to reintroduce salmon into the McLeod River. The McLeod is one of the main tributaries of Shasta Dam, and the fish have not swum there since the 1940s, when the dam was built. How can you tell it's a male? Uh, I'm looking at the hook jaw, and it's a little bit slender. It's dark in color. It has a lot of good male features to it. He punches a hole in one of its fins. About the size of what you would get out of a hole punch. The sample will be sent up to a genetics lab in Washington State. And they will be able to tell us whether it is a winter run or not. 
It will also look at other genetic markers to help hatchery employees pick the most diverse group of salmon to breed. Any winter run not used for breeding will be trucked back, near to where they were found. And they can spawn naturally in the river there, in the Sacramento River there. Spring run fish are also migrating upriver at this time of year. And like the winter run, they're trying to get above the dams. So they, too, get caught in the traps. So this is an example of a fish that's probably going to be a spring run. Uh, It's a lot more silvery. Um, It's got a lot more life left in it. Bo Hopkins holds the fish in his hands, and I look this large, silvery creature in the eye. And something happens inside of me. It's like I sense its weariness, how far it's traveled. Thousands of miles from spawning grounds to the ocean, up and down the coast, and then returning up the river again. The Winnemawintu have told me that Chinook salmon are a magical fish. And now I get it. It is a living, sentient creature. Its determination is palpable. Right now, it's a fish out of water, unable to reach its final destination. Its destiny has become part of the legacy of Shasta Dam. The Winnemumwintu want to change that. I'm here with Lila June Johnston again. So Lila, you wrote a song called Time Traveler that was in part influenced by the Winnemumwintu. Time Traveler, running faster, warrior is born, battle to be won, past trauma. Yeah, I called it Time Traveler because... In a way, even though our bodies don't make it into the future because we die, our actions do ripple out through time. And so I really wanted to to, to articulate, like, what does it mean to be a good ancestor, to think forward into the future? There's a place in the Wenham and Wintu McLeod River Basin where one of their ancestors planted these fruit trees. And that actually is mentioned in my song, because the Winnemum went to, along with many other elders across the nation that I've been lucky to learn from, uh, they inspired that line, you know, to, to plant trees whose fruit you will never taste for people you'll never meet. Protecting cycles of rain and cycles of snow, fighting for children whose names I will never know. I look up and read the messages written all across the sky. Messages telling us that it's time to evolve or die. It's time to live this life right. So that when our children look back, they look back with pride. The Winnemum Wintu are busy planting seeds for the future, including efforts to return salmon to the McLeod River, the heart of their homelands. They've never given up hope they could get them back. The government is focused on saving just the winter run. The Winnemumwintu want all salmon runs back in their river. But for a long time, they didn't know how to deal with the challenge of Shasta Dam. That began to change in 2004. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation was ramping up plans for the Shasta Dam and Reservoir Enlargement Project. This was a real low point for Winnemumwintu morale. The dam's original construction had caused so much damage, and now a bigger dam threatened more of their sacred sites. Sites the Winnemumwintu considered critical for the continuation of their culture. 
the idea of a higher dam disturbed them a lot. Because they're trying to slide it in, and we're going through this the second time. They've already burdened us one time with flooding all of our places and, and us coming up with nothing. When the original dam was built back in the 1940s, no one asked the Winnemuwintu what they thought. This time around, they had a chance to give input. Before submitting official responses, they went up into the mountains to pray. You know, we're trying to file all these papers, take those papers to the mountains. We pray over those papers before we submit them. And uh, we were told that we needed to tell the world. You're going to do this war dance, and it's going to help you. They were to do a war dance. And so uh, then it was like, well, where are we going to do this? And and that's what they said. you got to do it at the, uh, the weapon of mass destruction. That's the dam. Shasta Dam. For us, that's the weapon of mass destruction. She tells me this is a prayer that came down from the mountains. When you say that prayers come down from the mountain, what mountains are we talking about? Uh, like a council of the mountains came together and, and decided this is what we could do. Because, you know, who are we? We have no power. We have no money. We have no champions in Congress. I mean, nobody even listens to us. So we follow the, the council of the mountains. Chief Kalin's son, Michael Preston, says they were being called to a spiritual fight. They call it a war dance, but it's not really talking about war. Over the years, Michael and I have had several big conversations about the spiritual and its place in the Winnemuwintu worldview. He says the war dance is part of a larger fight. It's basically just not giving up on our, our sacred sites and our animals and the spirits and showing them that we're not going to give up and opposing anything that is threatening our way of life and threatening our homelands and the Shasta Dam is one of them and is, has been one of them. The problem was, in 2004, none of the Wintu knew what their war dance looked like. The last one took place before any of them were born. A fish expert by the name of Livingston Stone arrived to California in 1872. On orders of the U.S. Fish Commission, he set up the West Coast's first salmon hatchery, built on their river, the McLeod. The Winnemuwintu didn't like the idea of a white man messing with their fish. In his writings, Livingston Stone described a demonstration that took place on the banks of the McLeod. They assembled in force, with their bows and arrows, on the opposite bank of the river, and spent the whole day in resentful demonstrations, or, as Mr. Woodbury expressed it, in trying to drive us off. Had they thought they could succeed in driving us off with impunity to themselves, they undoubtedly would have done so, and have hesitated at nothing to accomplish their object. But the terrible punishments which they have suffered from the hands of the whites for past misdeeds are too vivid in their memories to allow them to attempt any open or punishable violence. So, at night, they went off, and seemed subsequently to accept, in general, the situation. The Winnemum went to risk their lives to dance. During that time, white settlers often showed no mercy toward Native people. They would kill Indians on the site at that time. 
no problem. They killed them like dogs, you know. They killed them like squirrels. They killed them like whatever. They killed them like uh, like nothing. And then, in that the risk of that, they still did the dance because that's what they're supposed to do. That's the spirits told them to do because they were messing around with the salmon, manipulating their life, changing their natural instinct of what salmon are. That's against the laws of creation. What are you guys doing? You're breaking the spiritual law. <laughs> and we're in, in our responsibility is to stop you. The war dance showed the Winamawintu's fierceness and commitment. It also gave rise to a prophecy that wouldn't make sense until much later. The message came through of the salmon going through the ice waterfall. It was going to go away from the river. At the time, they were like, what? How's, how's the salmon going to go away? At that point, salmon were incredibly plentiful. In his reports to the government, Livingston Stone wrote with wonder about their abundance. I have never seen anything like it anywhere, not even on the tributaries of the Columbia. On the afternoon of the 15th of August, there was a space in the river where if a person could have balanced himself, he could actually have walked anywhere on the backs of the salmon. They were so thick in the river in July that we counted a hundred salmon jumping out of the water in the space of a minute. The Winamumwintu didn't approve of the hatchery, but they worked there. It offered a measure of protection from settlers who were quickly encroaching on their traditional territory. The Winamumwintu helped catch salmon to harvest and fertilize their eggs. Livingston Stone described their skill. The Indian swimmers, their dark heads just showing above the white foam, screaming and shouting in the icy waters and brandishing their long poles, came down the rapids at great speed, disappearing entirely now and then as they dove down into a deep hole. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is inspired a production of Interfaith Voices. We're listening to an episode of A Prayer for Salmon from our partners at The Spiritual Edge, which will continue after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show.
If you're just joining this week, we are listening to another installment in the special series, A Prayer for Salmon, produced by our partners at The Spiritual Edge. Let's get back to the story with producer Judy Silber. The McLeod River hatchery that Livingston Stone set up sent salmon eggs all around the world, to the East Coast, to Hawaii, to Canada, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Then, in 1935, the hatchery closed down for good. Shasta Dam went up. It displaced the Winnemumwintu from the McLeod River and blocked salmon from swimming upstream. Half a century later, Kaleen Sisk became chief of the Winnemumwintu. She took over leadership from her great-aunt Florence Jones, who died in 2003. A short time later, plans to build Shasta Dam higher began ramping up. The Winnemumwintu confronted the idea of loss all over again. Not too long after, the Winnemumwintu received that message to revive the war dance. It hadn't been done in more than 100 years. We didn't even have songs for war dance, right? And so, and I'm thinking, okay, we're going to do this war dance. I just have to believe we're going to do this war dance and that it will come together and we'll know what we're doing. Community members started to have dreams and visions. And so every person, whether whatever age they are, they might come up and say, hey, I had this dream about this, or I saw it like this, or um, what color it was, or all of those things. You know, it's a, it's a shared event that we're getting ready for, and everybody who's getting ready could be a vessel for information. In addition to figuring out regalia, dances, songs, they needed a permit from the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. We went to the Bureau of Reclamation. We said, this is what we need to do. We need to do that right over here on the dam. And so our dates, because we do things in fours, so four days, which included 9-11. And I said, oh, no, you can't be dancing 9-11. It's like, okay, so we'll move it. The Winnemumwintu agreed to change the date to avoid the anniversary of the 9-11 New York Twin Tower attacks. But the haggling didn't stop there. Because we said we have to have a fire, we have to uh, have that in the ground, and they said, oh no, you can put that in a barbecue pit, but you can't put it on the ground. Then we have to be there 24-7 for four days. They said, oh no, no, no. You have to put that fire out at 10 o'clock at night, and you can come back at 6 o'clock in the morning and light it up again. It's like, oh no, no, no. It's like, once we light that sacred fire, we have to stay over. We have to tend that fire. And so after one of those meetings, I went out there and I put tobacco down on the place where the fire was going to be. The next meeting we had with the Bureau of Reclamation, they had uh, given us the permit in the name of the Winnemumwintu tribe, which is basically recognition of our tribe, right? And they had uh, given us everything we we wanted. All righty. Thank you so much for coming to the press conference for the Winnemum Winter War Dance. The war dance began on September 12, 2004. The Winnemum Winter gathered at a grassy area on federal property within view of Shasta Dam spillway. 
News media showed up, as did environmental activist Julia Butterfly Hill. She'd gained national recognition when she occupied an ancient redwood tree for two years to stop it from being logged. And sometimes it's very hard to make people understand why issues like this are important when they live in cities maybe like Chicago or New York City or a a big city somewhere. A native elder taught me a beautiful thing and said, Julia, what some of you would call resources, we call relatives. And so I am here today to call upon the people across America to begin to recognize our responsibility as a sacred responsibility to protect relatives and to begin to look at the way we use the sacred earth and all that's on it. Chief Colleen also spoke before the small crowd. All right, thank you for coming and uh, being interested in our situation here. All of this audio of the war dance comes from filmmaker Toby McLeod, who was there. We are the Winnemum-Wintu tribe of Northern California here and have survived the development of the Americas and the statehood of California. It's worth repeating that Chief Colleen Sisk was a relatively new leader at this point. Under her leadership, the Winnemum-Wintu were taking on the U.S. government with a war dance. She told me later it wasn't without fear. At the press conference, she spoke of sacred sites threatened by the proposed dam expansion. We visit and take care of and practice at our sacred sites all along the McLeod River up to Mount Shasta. But even back in 2004, salmon were top of mind. Federal agencies had yet to publicly discuss restoring Chinook populations above Shasta Dam. But at the press conference, Chief Colleen pushed the idea. And so this dance is partly for them, to try to bring the salmon home. People want to see an increased population of salmon. Well, let them go upstream. Let them go up the rivers. And they'll multiply. There'll be more salmon. If you give them back the beds that they are familiar with, you know, they run here and they stop right here. No salmon go up to the Prairie Nation. No salmon go up to the Shasta Nation. No salmon come up for the Winnemums. We're salmon people, all of us upriver. We're all salmon people connected to this river. And because we have no salmon, our diets and our health status has diminished. And we suffer from not having the salmon with us. So today we are here to tell the river, to tell the salmon, to tell the world. You know, we're still a people. And that we have the right for cultural preservation. And we're hoping that all the good people of the country, all the good people of the state, the good people that uh, are in powerful positions will hear us. For four days and nights, the warriors danced in front of a sacred fire. They fasted. They never left the grounds, spending the night in sleeping bags around the fire. It was their first time to perform this dance, but from then on, it became part of their repertoire during big ceremonies. Here's Rick Wilson, the Winnemum-Wintu dance captain, speaking about the warrior's intentions. He says, this is me and this is who I am. And the fire looks them over and checks them out, you know, to see if we're worthy of that, to be a war dancer, be a warrior for our tribe. But that's what, one of the things that, that this dance does is it brings out the spirit 
It brings out the things that are in Mother Earth. That's why we have this drum that sounds, it sits down inside Mother Earth. And we pound on it. That day at the dance, the young women of the tribe dressed in white. Chief Colleen told filmmaker Toby McLeod they were the water girls. She also talked about the meaning of a song they sang about the Lindata Nur, or the old-time salmon. That song says, the Nalda Boymim Winna. And warriors don't like the big water they see. And then when they say, Linda Nur Lohe Winna, is that we want to, we want the old salmon, old way, old time, big salmon, and lots of them come back up. You want to see them again. When we didn't know that song two days ago, but did you hear it? being sung, as if we knew that for years. On the fourth day of dancing, a Winnemumwintu man who embodied the spirit of the bear came out to dance with the warriors as well. If you'd said to us, you know, a month ago, what are you going to do? What will the dance look like? You know, we were told these things from the creator. No, the bear decided he wanted to come. And he decided when he would come in. To give us strength. It's like that last leg that you're running. We're on our last day, which is the hardest while our warriors were fasting. So he's lending that strength to them. What came next? Surprise, Chief Kalin. 87 newspapers around the world picked up the story that this small tribe declared war against the United States and danced on the dam. Including the New York Times and the Associated Press. To me, this is where the Winnemum Wintu story gets a little fantastical. Like if you were writing a novel, it's the twist you'd want to make up. Remember when I told you that Chief Kalin wanted wild eggs from really far away? Well, here's what that was about. A few months after news of the war dance went around the world, they got an email from a professor in New Zealand. He wrote, we have your fish. It got the Winnemumwintu thinking about how to get them back. Special thanks to filmmaker Toby McLeod for use of his recordings at the 2004 war dance. This special series is a project of The Spiritual Edge, led by executive producer Judy Silber and her co-host and advisory board member, Dr. Lila June Johnson. Support for the project comes from the Templeton Religion Trust, California Humanities, the Calopia Foundation, and Save Our Spirits and Waterdesk, an independent journalism initiative at the University of Colorado Boulder. The production team includes editors Loretta Williams and Jeb Sharp, sound engineers Chris Agusa and Tark Fauda, producer Adrian Rodriguez and Deborah Kroll, researcher Katie McClutchen, and fact checker Danya Abdal. Coming up, we dip into the archives to hear an interview with Ray Monk, a British biographer who spent 15 years diving into the complex and sometimes conflicted beliefs of the father of the atomic bomb, physicist Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer. This is inspired a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. 
Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Last weekend saw the premiere of one of this year's most anticipated movies. Come on, Barbie, let's go party. No, not that one. We love Barbie, but I'm talking about Christopher Nolan's biopic of Dr. Robert Oppenheimer. We imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. Last weekend, the film grossed $80.3 million in North America alone, contributing to one of Hollywood's biggest weekends ever. Particularly surprising given the subject. The events that took place 75 years ago in New Mexico, under the leadership of Dr. Oppenheimer, a physicist, curious philosopher, and activist. Simply put, he was a complex and often conflicted man. You don't have to ascribe to the great man theory of history to recognize his undeniable influence on the course of World War II and the rest of the 20th century. In addition to his contributions to physics, he was also deeply curious and engaged in political philosophy and Eastern traditions, namely Hinduism. What were his beliefs and why were they so controversial at the time? These are some of the questions producer Ruth Morris explores with an Oppenheimer biographer, Ray Monk. Robert Oppenheimer has been called the father of the atomic bomb. He was the wartime head of the Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico, and it was there on July 16, 1945, that he and his fellow scientists conducted the Trinity Test, the first detonation of a nuclear weapon. But to my guest, Oppenheimer was also a secular Jew, a student of poetry, and at times a puzzlement. Ray Monk is a British philosopher and the author of Robert Oppenheimer, A Life Inside the Center, and he joins us from the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico, where he's a Miller scholar. So, Professor Monk, um, you are quite close to Los Alamos, where you are today, and I thought I would just ask you um, to describe where you are and how it feels to be there, how it feels to be there as somebody who's studied the creation of nuclear weapons right around the corner. Right. Well, yes, I'm, I, I, I can actually see Los Alamos from the Santa Fe Institute. Wherever I go around here, uh, there are reminders of things that I've written about in my book. Well, I've got your book here next to me, and I'm looking at the cover picture, which is a picture of Oppenheimer. I think it's a fairly well-known picture. He must be, I think, in his 50s. He has short gray hair. He's in front of a a, a chalkboard with uh, calculations on it. Yes. And he has this kind of faraway look in his eyes. I'm wondering why you chose that picture and what you see when you look in in that face with that expression. That's an interesting question. I, I, I do like that picture very much, and I think it, 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 it represents several things about Oppenheimer. I mean, you know, the symbols on the board that are impenetrable to anybody but a, you know, uh, a, a nuclear physicist... And another thing that you can see in that photograph is the intensity of his eyes. He had uh, blue eyes and they were incredibly intense and uh, people were sort of bewitched by him and his his presence. And I think that picture gives some indication of why. He also does seem to be sort of gazing or contemplative. Exactly, which hints at his uh, religious interests. Um, as you said in your introduction, he was... Uh, he was from a secular Jewish family. He, I don't think he ever set foot in a synagogue in his whole life. 
Um, but he acquired a very deep interest in Hinduism. Uh, he taught himself, he, he learned Sanskrit in order to read the Hindu classics in their original language. Um, and he knew the Bhagavad Gita in Sanskrit, more or less off by heart. And he was very drawn towards um, the mystical, the ineffable, uh, the uh, inexplicable. He was fascinated by uh, not just uh, not just the, the Hindu religion, but um, you know mysticism in, in 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 many forms. And and also, as you said in your introduction, he he, he wrote poetry. He's a very unusual um, physicist. He was enigmatic, and I think he enjoyed being en- enigmatic. He he didn't want to be understood. He wanted to be mysterious. And was it the same friend who said that he might have had a more integrated personality if he was more Jewish? That's right. Um, Isidore Rabi said that that you know that Oppenheimer's great problem was identity. Um, that he never really found his identity. That he had these. Uh, bright shining shards as as Isidore Rabi put it that he had you know he's made up of sort of gleaming splinters that never quite came together in in into a coherent whole Uh, and I think Rabi did think that that was something to do with him denying uh, an aspect of his uh, upbringing and background. And in your research, did you ever come to any conclusions about why he didn't embrace Judaism more fully? Well he grew up within um, within a kind of religion, although a, uh, an avowedly secular religion, which is the Ethical Culture Society, which was started by a rabbi's son in, in New York City, and it had it, it had its own place of worship and it had its own school. There was no commitment to any particular religious belief, but there was a commitment uh, to being a good person and to helping the people around you. So... We're looking at nuclear weapons and religion this week, and we're trying to understand a bit about Oppenheimer's worldview and his moral compass. Would you say then that this ethical culture movement was where he got his sort of ethical foundation from, his worldview from? I think so, yes. And and it was also tied in with patriotism because um, Part of the ethical culture movement was to be a good citizen and specifically to be a good American citizen. So he saw it as a moral obligation. I think it was. I, I mean, people, people, his friends remember him when, when the discovery of fission was announced, remember him being very excited about the prospect of using the energy release in, in fission reactions uh, to, 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 to form an exp- an, you know, a weapon, an explosive of hitherto unimaginable force. And so Oppenheimer famously turned to Hindu scripture to express how he felt or how he reacted after the Trinity test. And we've got that clip. I'm just going to play it, but mm. could you set it up for us? Yeah, he was asked how he felt at the time of the Trinity test. And he said that the words of the Bhagavad Gita came to him. The words were, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And this was in an interview several years later? Many years, many years later, yes, yes. Okay, let's hear that. Few people laughed, few people cried, most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says 
Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. It's a it's an extraordinary clip, isn't it? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, uh, his his voice was amazing, wasn't it? It it it, it reminds me a bit of T. S. Eliot's voice. It's it's not quite British and it's not quite American. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's an extraordinary voice, I think. Well, so what I hear there is just the the pause in his voice and yeah. the weight of what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can almost you can imagine him feeling sort of some sort of very heavy moral weight when yes. he speaks that way. Yes. I mean, the way he, it, 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 it almost sends uh, shivers down your spine, doesn't it? Because he, he he's, you know, the, the, you can say, you get a sense in the tone of his voice of the depth of the emotion that he's recalling. The, um, the line from the Bhagavad Gita is interesting because it's usually translated as, I am become time, the destroyer of worlds, because the Sanskrit word for time hmm. can also mean death. Um, and I think the, the, the idea of that uh, original quotation is that, as it were, time destroys everything. So uh, but, but, what does but, it mean to you then that he chose to use the word death instead? Well, I think, I, 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 I mean, surely what it means is that he's looking at this extraordinary uh, explosion, the like of which had never been seen before, and imagining it as representing the deaths of thousands of people. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't see how you could, you, you could be at Trinity without that thought crossing your mind. You know, I am the man responsible for this thing that is unleashing death on a hitherto unknown scale. Also, I think it invites the suggestion that he's become as powerful as an almighty destroyer. I mean, do you think that there was any sense of the scientists working at Los Alamos feeling that they'd overstepped somehow where science was supposed to take them or that they had reached into a new realm of destructive power that was God's domain. Yes, I do. Um, Oppenheimer didn't quite put it like that, but he did come close in a lecture that he gave after the war in which he used the very interesting and arresting phrase. He said, um, we physicists have now known sin, which I think is very interesting. And I think it... it, it, it on the one hand, he's making a, a far more general point that, that physicists now, uh, you know, don't work in ivory towers. They now work on government-sponsored projects that have real-life consequences in armed conflict. Uh, he meant that, but I think also he meant specifically that he and the, uh, the, his colleagues at Los Alamos felt as if they, as it were, had got their hands dirty. It chimes with another famous remark of Oppenheimer's when he uh, went to see President Truman shortly after the uh, atomic bombings in Japan, and President said to Truman, Mr. President, I feel I have blood on my hands. Wow. And that first test, the Trinity test, it was Oppenheimer who chose that name for the test, right? Do we know why he chose the word Trinity? It's clearly important to him that it has a John Donne reference. Now... His lover, his ex-lover, Jean Tatlock, had committed suicide uh, shortly before the Trinity test. And she was, uh, she was a scholar, a, a literary scholar, and her favourite poem was John Donne. And my hunch, and it is only a hunch, I have no direct evidence for this, is that Oppenheimer chose the name Trinity with its connections with John Donne 
as a way of paying homage to his uh, to his ex girlfriend. Mm. So not necessarily an overt religious reference, maybe a a tip of the hat to her. Yes, I don't. But I don't think it's irrelevant that it's a religious reference, that it's to do with a three person God and that it's to do with, uh, you know, devotional poems by a metaphysical poet. Um, I think, you know, that it, it's that aspect of it, I think, would have been important to Oppenheimer. He was paying homage to Jean, but he's also paying homage to those things about Jean uh, that he liked and, and that had made him fall in love with her including her deep interest in metaphysics, poem, poetry and religion. Mm. What do you know of Oppenheimer's own reaction to the bombings of Hiroshima and then later Nagasaki? Right. Well, I think I think he the, the, the you know, if, if you're responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people, that is going to be a heavy burden and I think Oppenheimer felt it as a heavy burden. But I think his reaction to the two bombs uh, his, uh, were, were, were very different. Uh, I think he felt that the Hiroshima bombing was justified, and he said that repeatedly throughout his life. But the Nagasaki bombing, I think, horrified him. He's, he's reported by people you know, watching him and keeping an eye on him as being a nervous wreck on the day of the Nagasaki bombings because he couldn't see the point... For him, this was the needless deaths of tens of thousands of people. Um, and, you know, he he went through hell, as it were, thinking about that. As opposed to his attitude to, to the Hiroshima bombing, which was um, a sober acknowledgement of the horror of the deed, mixed with a persistent belief that it was justified and necessary. And he didn't feel that way about the Nagasaki bombing. No, he felt that the, one was enough to display. Yes, what was I, possible. I, I think the scientists generally at Los Alamos felt that one bomb was enough. That the you know the Japanese would not risk having another devastating attack like the Hiroshima one, and that they would have surrendered. And that therefore, from the point of view of defeating the Japanese, the Nagasaki bomb was uh, uh, redundant and unnecessary. And what about other scientists who worked with Oppenheimer? Did any of them have religious or spiritual qualms about the work they were doing? I don't know of any religious qualms, but um, uh, and there's, uh, it's a striking fact that there's only one scientist who ever left the project for ethical reasons, and that was uh, the Polish scientist, Joseph Rockblatt, who, when it became obvious that the Germans were nowhere, had got nowhere near making an atomic bomb... Rotblatt went to see General Groves and said, well, look, the argument that brought us here was we need to make a, a, a bomb before the, before the Germans do. We now know that the Germans didn't got nowhere near making a bomb and are in no danger of making a bomb. Uh, what then is the rationale for this uh, facility? And Groves said to Joseph Rotblatt, well, it's now no longer about the Germans. It's about the Japanese and the Soviet Union. And at that point, Joseph Rotblatt left left the project, um, and he then dedicated his life to do whatever he could as a scientist and as a human being, as it were, to pre prevent the proliferation of atomic and nuclear uh, weapons. And together with the series of pugwash conferences that he organised, um, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. 
But he is the only scientist to leave Los Alamos, to have left Los Alamos for ethical reasons. There were other scientists who had thoughts about the morality and the political consequences of what they were doing. They held meetings at in in 1945 at Los Alamos and then that developed into the group that produced the journal the bulletin of the atomic scientists which is a uh, a bulletin a, a magazine in which atomic scientists reflect on the ethical social and political consequences of what they're doing and they have have you know they they spent the 50s and 60s right up until the present day doing their best to warn governments and people uh, of the dangers of these weapons. So it sounds like what you're saying is though is that although just one scientist actually left for ethical or religious reasons, there was a consensus among many of the scientists there that they had a moral obligation and ethical obligation connected to their work. Yeah, that was that was the mood that prevailed at Los Alamos and uh, Oppenheimer himself was part of that. He he left Los Alamos. He ne- he never went back to theoretical physics. He didn't publish a single paper in theoretical physics from the ending of Los Al- from his the end of his time of Los Alamos to his to his death. He dedicated himself to politics uh, because of what he'd seen uh, at, at Los Alamos and and what he was responsible for having done at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so he moved to the east. He had been teaching in California, but he moved to Princeton so that he could be within easy reach of Washington, D.C., where he appeared on all sorts of committees advising the U.S. government on their policy with regard to atomic energy. And specifically, he argued against the development of the hydrogen bomb. So as you probably know, there are two ways of uh, of using nuclear processes to 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 make a, a bomb, one is to 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 split apart heavy atoms like uranium or plutonium. The other way is to fuse very light atoms like hydrogen uh, or helium or lithium. Now, a fusion bomb, which was Edward Teller's project in Los Alamos, was it, it, from the very beginning just on on theoretical grounds. It was known that a fusion bomb could potentially be thousands of times more powerful than a fission bomb and so the government asked Oppenheimer to lead a committee advising it on whether it should have an accelerated program to develop a hydrogen bomb a fusion bomb and Oppenheimer's advice was no and his argument for that was this he said look no one in their right minds would ever use a bomb that is thousands of times more powerful than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima so given that nobody in their right minds would use it, why should we develop it? Hmm. And because he argued like that, uh, he was then, he went from being America's most trusted scientist uh, by, by the government and by, you know, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the military complex, as it were, uh, to, to being the, the least trusted. They, they immediately began to suspect that he was giving this advice um, because he was acting in the interests of the Soviet Union. So he did pay a price for that. He position. paid a heavy price. In, in 1954, uh, there was a security hearing which uh, heard the case for stripping Oppenheimer of his security clearance. And uh, the prosecutors, as it were, won that case. And he was therefore stripped of his security clearance and not allowed access 
to the very documents that he had helped produce. And then to wrap up, I'm wondering if Oppenheimer changed the way he thought about his work on nuclear weapons as he got older, you know, as he sort of reviewed his life's work. Did he ever express regrets? You know, did how did he die? Well, he, he was asked repeatedly, do you regret leading the project that developed the first atomic bomb and the consequent use of the atomic bomb? And he replied every single time that no, he didn't regret that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clear, although he didn't make much of this in later life, it's clear at the time that he deeply regretted the use of the second use of the bomb in, in, in Nagasaki. Um, but I think it's possible to see in his later career and in his determination to do whatever he can, do whatever he could to to stem the tide of atomic and nuclear weapons. It's possible, I think, to see in that some kind of reaction. Um, I mean, it's tempting to, 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 to suggest that he got involved in that because he felt guilty about having led the uh, atomic bomb project. Mm-hmm. But he, he, he himself denied that. But nevertheless, it, it is a striking fact that he dedicated his life to making the world a safer place and making it specifically as safe as he could make it from the threat of nuclear annihilation. Ray Monk is a British biographer who is renowned for his biographies of Bertrand Russell and J. Robert Oppenheimer. He is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Southampton. This conversation first aired in 2017. That's all for this week's show. To learn more about this week's episode, head over to the show notes at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. Find our podcast wherever you listen. Just search Interfaith Voices. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy, the team at The Spiritual Edge, Laura Correll, and Ruth Morris, along with myself. Thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions, and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners and donors to bring you this program. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.